Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of What the Politics, episode number 22. I am here joined by Emily Serverich. Our guest for today is a political analyst from a conservative free market think tank here in the state of North Carolina called the John Locke Foundation. They push policies regarding conservative and free market thinking, and they also have their own journal, the Carolina Journal, where they broadcast these policies and some of the reporting on state government. And so I'm going to go ahead and let our guest introduce himself. My name is Mitch Kokai. I am senior political analyst at the John Locke Foundation and have been here for about 15 years. The foundation is a free market public policy think tank based in Raleigh and focuses on state level issues. Uh, folks may hear free market public policy think, what does that mean? A lot of people will say we're a conservative think tank or a small L libertarian think tank. That kind of fits along with, with what we do. We monitor state government for the most part, to some extent local governments, to uh, ensure that the types of policies that are being considered and put into place uh, will serve government's needs without having too much of a negative impact on people's abilities to make their own decisions about what to do with their own money and how to uh, operate in their own lives. We do like to ask um, our a, pers- a personality <laughs> yeah, question as well um, for our guests. So our personality question for you is, you know, all over our country, we're dealing with some crazy, crazy weather. So what is your favorite season and why? Uh, I love summer. And that was one of the things that drew me to North Carolina. I'm originally go. from Ohio. And I tell you, the... Um, the weather that we had over the past weekend in Raleigh, I, I was going through that and thought, hey, you know, this, this is like Ohio five months out of the year. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> luckily, we'll only have to deal with it for a week or two. In Ohio. But yeah, summer is my favorite season. Uh, and it's just because I'm not a fan of the cold, and especially after growing up for years, shoveling snow <laughs> every winter. Uh, you know, I... I don't mind seeing it occasionally, but if I never saw another flake of snow again, I would be okay. <laughs> Same. So one of the policy issues that I kind of want to dive into is um, schools, schools reopening during uh, during the pandemic. And from my understanding, there's been pushback against Governor Roy Cooper. I believe there was a poll that, um, that showed that a lot of people disagreed with how he was handling school reopenings. What why do you think there is pushback and what are some things that your um, that the think tank and the policies that you're pushing are wanting? Well, I think the main reason for the pushback is that people are getting tired of the shutdowns. Uh, back when everything pretty much shut down because of COVID-19 last spring, people who were mad about it or scared about it, I think eventually, got behind this idea that we really don't know what this pandemic is going to do. And so even if we dislike it, even if it's very disruptive, we can accept 
shutting things down for a little while till we get our bearings and to this, and then to decide how to move forward to deal with this pandemic in the most efficient and effective way that, that doesn't cause overly bad health outcomes. And as time has gone on, people's frustration has grown that there have not been good decisions made about how we get as close to normal as possible uh, in getting kids back into school and getting businesses back operating as they had. Uh, And while other areas of our lives have tended to get back a little bit closer to normal, schools are one area in which we really haven't seen a whole lot of positive development since last spring. From our vantage point at the John Locke Foundation, what we'd really like to see is decisions being made that emphasize parents' ability to make their own decisions about how their kids should be educated. If it comes to uh, decisions about throwing more money at the existing school system, we tend to be a little bit wary about that. We would be happier with options that allow parents the maximum flexibility to make decisions about what to do with their students. If it's sending them back to the traditional district schools with the proper social distancing and all of the other COVID uh, requirements that need to take place, that's great. But if it means putting the kids into private school, which many have, uh, maximize the opportunities for parents to do that because well-off parents could already do that, but middle-income, lower-income parents don't have that opportunity, have an easier time if they want to homeschool their kids or if they want to set up learning pods with other families. That's the type of thing we would want to look at. So our emphasis on is on what's best for the student, and the next step beyond that is what is the best way to allow parents to make the decisions that are best for their students because the parents are the ones who are going to be who are going to have the best information about what works best for their students so that that's where we focus our attention so there was one sort of phrase that you mentioned in in the in your answer and that was um, throwing money at the situation, trying to find solutions that don't necessarily mean throwing money at the situation. During the pandemic, there has been a lot of debate about stimulus checks and about um, even in the recent uh, the bill that President Biden, <clears throat> uh, the economic package that President Biden was pushing was um, raising the federal min- minimum wage to $15 an hour. Um, what are what are the foundation's take on these stimulus checks and pushing for for um, some of the checks to be monthly, not just a one-time payment. In terms of in the pandemic, does it would it economically support the the country? Is it something that needs to be done, or is it something that can be compromised in finding other ways to keep the economy moving? Yeah, I'm going to tackle two pieces of this. First, you mentioned the minimum wage, and I'm going to hit that first before the stimulus. The $15 an hour minimum wage would be a terrible idea as a government mandate. And the reason for that is economists who are trying to actually just speak to what economic literature says and not just play some sort of partisan game, they'll tell you 
a government mandated minimum wage is a terrible idea for the people who need the most help. When you raise the minimum wage, there are definite winners. Those are the people who were making uh, minimum wage or making a level below what the new minimum wage would be who are able to keep their jobs once the new minimum wage is in place because then they'll get a higher wage. The people who are hurt by a higher minimum wage are the people who are not going to be able to put forward a level of uh, productivity that is going to convince employers to hire them. So the people who are at the lowest level of the income scale now, people who have the least amount of job skills, they're the ones who are going to have an even harder time than they do today to get a job because employers will look at their skill level and say, I just can't justify hiring this person at $15 an hour. It also leads entire sectors like fast food and other retail establishments to say, all right, if, if we're going to have to pay $15 an hour for a new person, and that's just a wage that doesn't count any benefits they might have, once they factor in what the entire cost is going to be for that person, they're going to say, all right, well, how much more sense does it make for us to invest in new technology, putting in kiosks for people to, to have their fast food orders or to, to ring themselves up in the, in the store, uh, the higher the, the mandated minimum wage, the more appealing those other options are. So raising the, the government mandated minimum wage to $15 an hour would be a terrible idea. And any economists who actually study the literature on uh, the minimum wage and its impact will tell you the same thing. The Congressional Budget Office, which is a Nonpartisan group said that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour would probably cost about 1.4 million jobs nationwide. Back then to the stimulus, one of the issues that we've seen with the stimulus check that already went out is that a lot of families have just decided to take that $600 stimulus check and stick it in the bank, uh, which is, is good for them. I mean, it's largely what I did with, with my stimulus check, it doesn't have an impact on uh, getting the economy going. And you're going to see the same thing if President Biden gets his wish of having a $1,400 stimulus check. Uh, what would happen is some people certainly will be able to use that money to pay for bills that otherwise wouldn't get paid. But many folks within the economy are going to use this just to put it in the bank and save up for something in the future, which is fine for them, but it's not something that's going to get the economy moving. What we really need to do is reduce government barriers uh, that, that stop the economy from moving forward, including government restrictions tied to COVID-19 that go far beyond what is needed at this point. Uh, lockdowns, might have made sense at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic when people were really unsure. But now that we're basically uh, pretty much a year into the United States dealing with COVID-19, we're in much better shape to deal with the situation by just having businesses and people making their own decisions about how best to deal with this. Businesses are certainly concerned about 
their, the safety of their employees and their customers. They don't want people to walk into their store and say, hey, no one's wearing a mask. No one's cleaning anything. I'm going to tell all my friends that we're not going to come here anymore. So businesses left to their own devices are going to take steps that are going to encourage people that it's safe to come back in. If you remove some of the government barriers uh, that have been put in place since the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, that's going to do a heck of a lot more to boost uh, our economy than sending out a stream of stimulus checks. Uh, the other thing, too, about stimulus checks is eventually the bill comes due. And I think a lot of people realize this, that if you're just sending money to people and not having any change in the tax code, that you're just basically sending the, the federal government further and further into debt, and one day we're going to have to pay that bill. That's one of the reasons why I think some people are not just going out willy-nilly and spending all that money. They realize that not only in their own livelihoods, but in their debt to government in the future, that if they, if, if nothing is done at this point to, to get a handle on the debt, we're all going to have to pay a much larger bill farther on down the line. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I, I wanted to, to take out from that answer again is the fact that you mentioned um, the uh, – the the debt that's that's accumulating and that's been accumulating for the past forever so <laughs> for a long time um one of the things that it that biden is pushing and and i believe um, the biden administration is pushing is canceling student debt um do you think that would in any way help the economy and what does it exactly mean i mean i, I think first we should explore what it means to cancel student debt and um, and then going forward, does that actually do anything for the economy or does it I, – I believe the economic term or the economic down uh, a consequence would be deflate – like it would devalue the American dollar. Would, is that correct? I'm not sure if that's correct, but let, let, I, I do want to explore what it would mean to cancel student debt. I don't know if canceling – yeah, I don't know that canceling student debt in and of itself lowers the value of the dollar. There are other things that do that. Uh, certainly keeping interest rates artificially low does that. Pumping more money into the economy value, devalues the dollar. Uh, the student loan idea is a, a bad one for a couple of reasons. One of them is that – if your goal with the policy is to help the people who need the help the most, then the student loan debt cancellation actually ends up helping middle and upper middle class people the most because the people who've taken out the most for student loans tend to be folks who took out student loans for grad school. That's not going to help a low-level person who's just trying to get a job who never went to college. Now, certainly, there are a lot of students out there who took on much too much of a uh, a student loan debt and are now reaping the consequences because they aren't getting jobs that are enabling them to pay off that debt quickly. But that's not something that you solve well by canceling student debt, what would be better in that situation is to change the rules so that people can restructure their debt uh, if they need to take uh, advantage of the bankruptcy laws you enable them to do that in ways that student debt has not been been used, uh, been accustomed to in the past. 
So, yeah, that's that's not going to have a positive impact on the economy. As I said, with the minimum wage, there would be some clear winners. The people who have a, a high level of student debt who suddenly get it canceled by the federal government, they're going to be the winners. But the people who are going to end up paying it, paying the, the, the cost of that, are people who, A, those who paid off student debt, and B, those who never had student debt, which is a much larger segment of the community, including a large segment of people at the lower end of the income scale who never went to college. So, yeah, that's another idea that while it sounds good to to some people on paper, if you take a larger look at it, it has uh, a negative overall impact, and it certainly wouldn't do anything to boost the economy. So we've talked about, you know, a couple different policies and, and topics that, you know, the foundation is is fairly vocal about. Um, and you guys have been fairly vocal in, ha- in having a hand in uh, school reform, health care, renewable energy. Um, so is there any policies or topics that the foundation is really focusing on right now um, to hopefully implement change or push that narrative out there? Yeah, well, as a reminder, we are a state-based public policy think tank, so we're focusing most of our attention on what's going on in Raleigh with the General Assembly. Right. You and I have been talking largely about the Biden administration and federal government policies. We focus mainly on state government policies, and I'll just tick through for you our list of the priorities for the current legislative session. Sure. The first one is to limit the emergency powers granted to the governor in a time of emergency. I think we alluded to this earlier that there was some concern about the way the Governor Cooper had dealt with school reopening, but there's also a larger concern about the way that he's used executive orders to be sort of the one person uh, determining what parts of the economy can open and what parts need to remain closed. Uh, we think that should be a decision that is made by more than just one person. So changing the state's emergency management act to put in some more safeguards would be a good thing. We're also talking about increasing broadband access. We've seen, of course, during COVID that this has been a a situation that has affected families, uh, especially the families that don't have broadband access. It's been hard for their students to be able to keep up with school. So increasing broadband access in a way that takes as much advantage of private sector actors as possible is good. We want to ensure election integrity. That was something that came up, of course, because of the 2020 election and the concerns, uh, whether you bought into what Donald Trump was saying about the elections or not, there were still legitimate questions about election integrity. Uh, Wait, can I push, can, can we stop on that sure. point and can I push you on, on what, um, what are some concerns that, that the foundation is, is seeing? Well, certainly people have had concerns about uh, the changing the rules so that you have no requirement of a signature of uh, for an absentee ballot uh, or delaying the time frame when absentee ballots can come in. Uh, also concerns about people voting out of precinct. I mean, there, basically, there were several changes made to the elections because of COVID that people who would like looser election rules want to make into permanent changes. Uh, we would like to see the rules that the General Assembly passed uh, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic be strengthened as much as possible. 
and that's going to take a, a discussion that will take place during the, the course of this legislative session. But certainly, we don't want to see rules that were put in place solely for the pandemic be turned into permanent rules just because that's what some interest groups on the left want to see. We want to see rules that make sense for North Carolina, and that's why we, we want to ensure election integrity. Uh, and then protecting worker freedom, and you're going to see an attack coming from the national level and to some extent from the state level on North Carolina's status as a right-to-work state. And so strengthening within our state constitution our right-to-work status is going to be an important thing. There are other issues you mentioned are interested in access to quality, affordable health care, uh, focusing education on the kids. We've talked about that. Practicing fiscal responsibility, which means uh, don't throw good money after bad. Make sure that your that your spending and your tax situations are good, so that North Carolina remains a long-term destination point for uh, business owners and entrepreneurs. Those are the types of things we're going to be focusing on on the state level during this year. Definitely. So, you know, one of my questions about just, you know, the John Locke Foundation and your involvement in it, I think you guys have, you know, the foundation has a very unique position where you guys are getting to report, but you're also having a very close, if not a pretty direct hand in policies or advocating for change, which is something that, you know, is a very fine line when you're just doing broadcast reporting, um, you know. So what do you have to say about that kind of responsibility and how you guys handle that? Well, I'm not sure my answer is going to get at what you're asking, but I'm going to answer what I think you're asking, and that is how do we separate, how do we separate the, uh, the policies that we're pushing for with the John Locke Foundation from the reporting that's done by Carolina Journal. Yes, yes, okay. Carolina Journal, okay, so Carolina Journal was a project of the John Locke Foundation. The Carolina Journal is the the journalism arm. It, it basically reports on state government news, but also within its opinions advocates from a free market perspective. Mm-hmm. That, that's one side of the operation. The other side of the operation is the think tank side of the operation, which says, here are our ideas about public policies that we think the state government should adopt. And you know, we make no bones about the fact that these are our policy positions, and Carolina Journal's reporting is done from the standpoint of supporting free markets and limited government. So uh, I don't think anyone who either sees the product coming out of the John Locke Foundation or sees the reporting done by Carolina Journal is under any illusion about what our viewpoint is. Our viewpoint is free markets and limited government, mm-hmm. which to some extent is uh, different than you see from some news outlets that profess to be straight down the line objective reporting, but tend to uh, advocate for one side or the other. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I do want to talk about that's state-related is the censure, well, state, North Carolina um, GOP censured um, uh, Senator Burr following the um, impeachment trial about his um, not, uh, excuse me, guilty um, uh, 
verdict, excuse me, sorry. Um, when it comes to situations like that, when it comes to the GOP, which from my understanding is a conservative party, um, how would you relate the Republican Party with this idea of conservative that is um, defined within the John Locke Foundation? And is there any partnership or is it just simply a, this is, these are the ideas that we're pushing that we think would serve um, the Republican Party if they were to push a conservative agenda in Congress and even in the state? Yeah, well, there is no partnership. And part of that is by the design and the tax code. I mean, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, mm -hmm. and we do have uh, in the Civitas Action Group a 501c4, which has a little bit different rules. But we are nonpartisan. We are conservative. We have a conservative viewpoint, or actually it's free market, but you could say it's conservative. But we are not aligned with any particular party. We tend to line up more with Republicans just because Republicans have tended to be, although not always, have tended to be the more free market, limited government uh, party. But we're happy to work with Democrats, capital L libertarians, when they want to work on the issues that we support. Uh, and so back to your issue of uh, the Republican Party censuring uh, Senator Burr, uh, I was quoted in an article uh, in the Winston-Salem Journal about this, and basically what I said to them was that vote of censure shows that there is a divide within the Republican Party about the proper response to what happened on January 6th. There was, there was a deep, robust debate in conservative circles and within the Republican Party about the proper response to both what happened on January 6th and the Republican Party after Donald Trump has left office. I mean, I think this is going to play out over the next certainly two years, probably four years, and I would not be surprised if it goes beyond that, that there will be people who who are conservatives and who are Republicans who want to continue to have a strong devotion to President Trump and the things that he stood for. And there will be others who say, look, we like some of the things that we did, but it's time to move on. It's time to change the conservative brand or the Republican Party brand to remove uh, Donald Trump as the sole focus. And so there's, there's a lot of debate. But in terms of the John Locke Foundation, we are based on our principles, the ideas that we support, to the extent that Republicans support the same things that we do, great. But we'd also like to see Democrats, Libertarians, and other the Constitution Party, that small third party uh, that, that came along uh, within the last election cycle. We'd like to see them support the ideas that we do as well. And to the extent that they do, we can work with them. To the extent that we oppose our ideas, we will agree to disagree and work for our ideas. Definitely. So you, you kind of touched on it in, in that answer. But for 2021, what are the hopes for the foundation? What are some goals you guys want to be able to reach by the end of 2021? Well, I, I listed some of them for you earlier, yes. but I'll, I'll hit them again. We want to limit the, the governor's emergency powers. We'd like to increase broadband access, but relying as much as possible on 
the, the private sector, mm-hmm. uh, government can get involved, but we don't want to have the government take that take that uh, industry over. Mm-hmm. We want to ensure the election integrity. This is one that's new for the John Locke Foundation, but it basically comes to us because of our recent merger of capabilities with the Civitas Institute, and that is encouraging more free enterprise among farmers. We really hadn't been doing much in the agriculture sector for the Locke Foundation, but that was a recent change in the Civitas Institute. And since Locke and Civitas are now working together, that's one of our priorities. We want to protect worker freedom, boost the access to quality affordable health care, focus education on kids, practice fiscal responsibility, and our the one that we haven't mentioned, but this is the ninth pillar in our list of uh, items that we're focusing on this year, and that is protect donor privacy, because that's something that has come under attack in other states, including California, and we don't want to see that be a problem here in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And um, I believe that was Emily's last question, and I have one more question for you when it comes to these policies and putting them out there. Will you reach out to the legislators themselves? Do they reach out to you? How does that? How do those relationships work? Yeah, there's a definite mix on that. We have a government affairs team uh, that does work directly with legislators that will present our policy ideas to them, answer their questions. Uh, if they uh, are interested in drafting a bill that is something along the lines of, of what we have discussed, uh, we can give them some ideas about how to make that bill better, how to avoid some pitfalls. So, yes, there definitely is that sort of relationship. I'm not part of the government affairs team, so my interaction with legislators tends to be either through interviews with them uh, or uh, writing columns that I hope and blog posts that I hope that they'll see. And, uh, and then if they do have questions for me about that, I'll answer them. But yes, there is, there is a lot of give and take uh, with legislators. And because we are a nonpartisan group, we'll work with any legislator who's willing to work with us. Sometimes even folks who are, you would look at their politics and say, well, they don't have anything to do with the John Locke Foundation. But some, some of the folks who are left of center, if there is a, an issue where we have common ground, they might want to work with us on it. Or sometimes they have an idea and they know it's not something that, that we're particularly fond of, but they might consult us to say, look, we know you're not a, a huge fan of this idea, but is there a less objectionable version of this that you, if you don't fight it, you at least uh, will, will not spend a lot of time uh, being against it. And so there, there is a lot of give and take between our organization and folks within the General Assembly, and also to some extent in local governments and even in uh, the uh, executive branch. Well, we greatly appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Um, we, I'm sure you're super busy, so we greatly appreciate you taking the time um, to discuss this with us. Um, thank you so much. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, the invitation and good luck. All right, everyone. That's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. We release new episodes every Tuesday. You can find those at WNCT.com under the Features tab on WNCT Podcast Network. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone.